Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is May the 18th, 2022. Yesterday, I did a really interesting show, I thought, with the former Secretary of Defense uh, in the Trump uh, uh, in the Trump administration, I was going to say regime, but administration, Mark Esper. Uh, and we talked about the, the surrealistic nature of, of, of life in the Trump regime, uh, this dramatic uh, uh, gulf, uh, chasm between what was actually going on and what was happening. Uh, the name of his book is A Sacred Oath, subtitled Memoirs of a Secretary of Defense During Extraordinary Times. And we talked a lot about the military and the way in which I think in America under Trump, the military was the one place that remained true and vaguely real. So we talked not only about uh, Esper, but also about Miley and his ability, General Miley, to stand up to Donald Trump. Um, we're going to continue our conversation about the military today with my guest, Phil Clay. He's a very distinguished ex-military guy who's written uh, a new collection of essays, Uncertain Ground, Citizenship in an Age of Endless Invisible War. Uh, he's also the author of a very uh, well-reviewed and successful novel, as well as a book about his experience overseas as a soldier. Uh, and I thought to begin, uh, Phil is joining us from... Queens, New York. Uh, I thought, Phil, to begin, uh, I, I want to show a clip of Mark Esper talking about conscription in America as a way of bringing people back together. And then afterwards, I want to begin our conversation by getting your take on the need for conscription or, or some other kind of national service in America. This is about a, a minute clip, and then we'll get back to Phil. Point. I've, I've talked to folks about this. I think a virtue of serving in the military is the fact that you get to meet people that you otherwise would never meet, right? Black, white, brown, Asian, you name it. Uh, you get to meet people from uh, of other religions, faiths. Maybe they're even atheists. You get to meet people who are, you know, uh, straight, gay, bisexual, and you're forced into a situation where you wear the same clothes. Uh, you eat the same food, uh, you get the same pay, and you're focused on a mission of defending the country. And it has a great unifying effect on, on everybody. That was my experience going to the academy and then, of course, serving in the military, uh, of, of having experienced that richness of America coming out from all corners of the country. So, look, uh, people would say, do you want a draft? Well, I, I don't want conscription because that would that would affect the quality. But it would be, it, on the other hand, if you could figure out a way to do that or some type of national service where you brought people together out of their silos, out of their bubbled community. And so they can think and meet other people and kind of break down these uh, stereotypes they formed in their head. I, look, I think it'd be a great thing to do. I just don't know how to, um, secretary recruiting and how important it is to not just recruit from the South or Southwest, but to recruit from America's large urban areas as well. It is the great mixing pot and it's delivered a lot of good. And, I'd love to see us get back to something like that, where we bring young people together from all walks of life. Let me bring Phil in on that. Phil, your new book, Uncertain Ground, Citizenship um, in an Age of 
Endless Invisible War. The subtitle might be The Crisis of Citizenship. Hmm. Um, d- does uh, Secretary Esper's, Esper's vision, uh, does it resonate with you or is it just the musings of someone slightly out of touch? <laughs> what he says about service is very true. And the people that you meet and the the importance of being with a lot of very different Americans from very different walks of life, all yoked together with a common goal, I think that's really profound. And I do think it would be great for our country to have a lot more avenues for public service, that there um, was much more of a sense of a kind of obligation towards national service, not necessarily the military. Not everybody wants to be in the military. Not everybody should be in the military. I'm sure there are some first sergeants, um, uh, <laughs> who would have difficulty, uh, with, um, you know, a, a huge influx of people who simply don't want to be there. But I don't know if that would solve all of our problems, right? For one thing, the way that we're using the military right now, it's not like if we had, uh, you know, <laughs> had more people coming into the military, had something like a draft, uh, or had, you know, that it would, it would then mean that people would be going overseas, right? We have a large presence overseas. We're doing a lot of things in a lot of different countries, but we're doing it with a fairly light footprint, especially since the sort of end of Obama's surge in Afghanistan, which was um, a bloody failure, uh, to put it not too gently. We've really been emphasizing special operations troops, intelligence, um, targeted killing, drone strikes, airstrikes, and working with proxy forces, right? That's a large part of how we wage war now. And that just is is very insulated from most of the population. And it's not even the, the entirety of our military that's doing that sort of thing right now. And a lot of that happens out of sight, um, you know, we're not embedding reporters with those units. We're not releasing a lot of information about what we actually are doing. And so the benefits of service, I think I, I am absolutely in agree, agreement with. I don't think it would solve some of our, some of the problems that, that concern me and which I think can really only come about through uh, political changes. Phil, does that mean, and you've written about this, the spirit of Donald Rumsfeld, not everyone's favorite fellow, and I, I'm not mm-hmm. sure you're a big fan. Uh, you no. wrote something in the post about him being a disastrous defense secretary, but his vision lives on this sort of technocratic, almost Silicon Valley-like vision of minimalizing labor and investing in technology uh, on the war front. Yeah. I mean, it was just uh, it was just reporting in the New York Times that, that President Biden was sending troops into Somalia. And in addition to working with local forces, they were going to be targeting a small cadre of um, al-Shabaab leaders to, you know, to keep the threat at a manageable level, right? So we have this situation where, you know, they refer to it as mowing the grass, where, you know... You what know, a horrible euphemism, Phil, mowing the grass. I mean, who comes up with this language? One Orwell, of course, famously talked about the misuse of language being the the foundation of political corruption, uh, who, who comes up with these words, mowing the grass? Yeah, well, there's the old uh, infantry, infantry, infantryman's riddle, what makes the grass grow? Blood. And, you know, 
it's it's not as if I'm necessarily opposed to every use of military force abroad. I'm not a pacifist. I think there's a there's a good use of American military power around the world, and 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 you know, case by case, mission by mission, I have different feelings about some of the things that we're doing. But I do worry about a situation where there's not a lot of oversight, and where we have this sort of politically easy button to push, right? Which is trying to manage a problem by killing you know killing people, uh, doing targeted killing. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily entail any sort of broader strategic thinking, and it doesn't entail the president having to go before Congress and explaining on a regular basis where we're sending people, what it's going to cost, um, what the benchmarks of success are supposed to be, so that you know two years later we can we can look and see whether we've achieved them or not, whether the the cost has been worth it in blood and treasure, whether it's been worth it to be you know killing people abroad, and and frankly the lesson of of Afghanistan and Iraq has clearly been that um, it is the second and third order consequences of violence, right, that have, that have proved determinative. And, and so I, I do greatly worry about a situation where that sort of Rumsfeld vision, where you have this light force, you've got, you know, great technology, uh, you have elite uh, commandos who are very good at, you know, going in and taking people out uh, and it seems like a solution to what are actually very, very complex problems. Phil, um, last year I had Arizona Congressman Ruben Gallego on the show. He fought in Iraq. Yes. Uh, it was a very moving conversation, actually. He has a wonderful new book out. They called us lucky, the life and afterlife of the Iraq war's hardest hit unit, a very moving piece about what war did to the men who mm -hmm. Gallego went into war with. You're writing in that tradition, a, a, a literary former soldier. Um, what do you want to tell Americans who have no idea of what war is like or the kind of war that Americans uh, that America is, is involved with these days, secret, invisible wars? What is it that you want to tell people? Right. Uh, not only in uh, uncertain ground, but uh, you've written a, a well-received uh, novel, Missionaries, uh, and as well as uh, your previous nonfiction book, Redeployment. A redeployment is fiction, but yeah. Um, you know, I have a couple friends who, when they came back from Afghanistan or Iraq, people would get the, you know, they get the question that veterans often get, which is, did you kill anyone? And the answer that they would give was, if I did, you paid me to do it. And I think war is the most morally fraught thing that a country can do. We all have a direct stake in it. A decent number of your, your tax dollars go to, go to our military operations around the world. And you should not accept a situation from your political leadership where that is kept obscure um, where we're not given information about it and where Congress is not forced to regularly vote on those matters. One of the things that I talk about in the book is how we're still using the authorization for the use of military force that was passed in 2001. And we're using it to strike groups that didn't even exist then or have incredibly tangential relationship uh, to the types of, of forces that that resolution was, was designed uh, to allow us to strike. That happened after 9-11, right? And enabled us to go into Afghanistan and yet, you know, especially during the Obama administration, right, which really pushed from the very beginning for this idea of a global battlefield unconstrained by geography where you can go out and, and 
um, and strike people uh, with not much in the way of limits. You know, that was pushed to include ISIS, which didn't exist back in 2001, groups in Africa that, you know, their, their threat to the homeland is, is uh, a little bit tem uh, tenuous. Uh, lawyers started arguing that you could strike people under a, a condition of prolonged imminence. So, uh, you know, normally you can only kill people if they're an imminent threat, but they decided that prolonged imminence was something that somehow existed. And, you know, at a very bare minimum, I think that uh, Congress should <laughs> should do more oversight, should be forced to actually vote on these matters, um, debate them, and and that's what we should demand as 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 citizens. Uh, Phil, um, uh, last week I had Francis Fukuyama, of course, the author of famous author of, in 1989 of the End sure. of History on the show. He has a new book out, Liberalism and Its Discontents. There's clearly a crisis of liberalism and democracy in America. How bound up is that crisis of liberalism and democracy with what you write about in Uncertain Ground, uh, citizenship or perhaps the lack of citizenship, American citizenship in an age of endless invisible war? Yeah, well, you know, I think it's, <laughs> it is interesting if, if you think about the ways in which the wars have kind of, they've destroyed a lot of faith in American elites, right? And you know, Understandably, American, right? Because they're not, the American really, elites aren't fighting in these wars. You know, I tell a story in the book uh, where I was going to a wedding, right? And so guy served with in Iraq, great guy, and he lives in rural Pennsylvania. So rural Pennsylvania, and this is right before the, the 2016 election. So this is, you know, Trump country. And we're passing, you know, Trump sign after Trump sign, Trump digs coal, that kind of thing. And my wife, who's Colombian American, turns to me and she's like, am I gonna be the only Hispanic person at this wedding? I say, no, 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 like it's a military wedding, it's gonna be super diverse, which it was. But um, I uh, <laughs> I get there and then when I meet the, uh, the other groomsmen, I text her and I'm like, not only are you the only, not the only, uh, Hispanic person at this wedding, you're not even the only Colombian American. And she's like, really? And I say, yeah. And he already early voted for Trump. And the reason that he did was very interesting, right? He was a former Marine. And he said to me, he said, look, you and I are both, you know, both served. We both know guys who've been blown up. We both know guys who've been injured. We both know guys who've been killed. And what do we have overseas? We have unbelievable devastation, right? And who are the candidates? On the one hand, you have Hillary Clinton. She's a liberal hawk, right? She thought that we should have, you know, been more heavily involved in Libya. She's competent. She knows generals, and she'll probably expand her military footprint. And on the other side, there's Donald Trump, whose instincts tend to be isolationist. You know, does he know a ton about the military? Do I expect grand things? No, not necessarily, but I'm going to go with the guy whose instinct is to, you know, not radically expand American wars. And I disagreed with him right for a whole variety of reasons but that wasn't a that wasn't a crazy analysis of their foreign policy positions and the possible costs right of a particular vision of a foreign policy and so you have this sort of deep frustration i think you have a sense that you know there are real interests right when there was the rise of isis you had this sort of weird schizophrenic reaction among the public because we didn't really want to re-engage in the war in Iraq, but we also really did not like what we were seeing and wanted to do something about it. Um, 
and a kind of cynicism about what we can achieve. Um, and, you know, I also talk about how sort of um, some of that discontent seems to have turned inward, right? You know, I mean, the, the, the biggest thing that prior to the evacuation of Afghanistan that, that looked anything like war um, in the past year uh, was January 6th, right? And so uh, we're, you know, Americans were killing each other. Um, so it's, it's uh, I do think that it is related to this sort of more general crisis that people feel about their government. And I think the current situation that I'm outlining is, is an issue of democracy because you have a situation where wars become extremely sophisticated the way that we do it, um, but also totally opaque to your average citizen and made opaque deliberately, right? So people don't feel like they have a democratic purchase on what we're doing. Yeah, and in all your pieces uh, talk about this in one way or the other, and as in their collection of, of other essays, uh, you wrote a piece uh, for America magazine about deployment in Iraq, changing your view of God, country, and humankind, as well as coming home. You ask in an opinion piece uh, in the New York Times from a couple of years ago uh, about the soldiers we leave behind, what it means to be an American. Um, you, argue in, you argued in The Atlantic from a couple of years ago that two decades of war have eroded the morale of American troops. How much worse, Phil, are things now? What we're fighting for for 2017, you know, nobody's quite sure. Um, given that we're out of, we, the Americans are out of Afghanistan for better or worse, and that the Iraq war, or the, the Iraq peace and war seem to be mixed together, how much worse are things now than they were three or four years ago? Well, there's obviously a, a humanitarian crisis. In Afghanistan. Uh, no, leaving aside the situation in Iraq or Afghanistan, how much worse is it um, in the American military in this surreal condition of American soldiers overseas? Right. So the Atlantic peace, a lot of it was talking about the mission in Afghanistan, actually, right? And the ways in which for a long time we'd sent people without a clear sense of a mission or with a mission that they didn't necessarily believe in, right? That they knew wasn't... wasn't or they didn't even understand because it was never properly articulated. Yeah, well, this is one of the, the consequences of not having public debate about, you know, uh, where we're sending troops. When I was in Iraq in 2007, it was an issue of public debate, right? There was this kind of... Um, carnival-esque testimony before Congress where General Petraeus and, and Ryan Crocker came in in September of 2007 to, to explain what was going on in Iraq after this there'd been this huge surge of troops where President Bush had expended a lot of political capital on this new strategy. Um, MoveOn.org took out a full-page ad in the New York Times suggesting that General Petraeus was going to be General Petraeus. There was you know grandstanding and partisan nonsense on all sides. There was democracy right, in other words, which is actually healthy. And out of that debate, I, as somebody in Iraq at the time, had a very clear sense of um, what the policy was that we were supposed to be, uh, you know, achieving, right? Because it was being forcefully debated and argued by political leaders and articulated in very granular detail. What did success look like, right? What were we supposed to achieve? What were the dangers of this policy, 
right? What, what couldn't this policy achieve? And in the absence of that, it's, 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 a it's very, it's very difficult for, for, for soldiers to feel like they have a real sense of why they're risking their lives. When, you know, I talked to a special forces veteran about the mission in Afghanistan uh, around the same time when Afghanistan was totally out of the news. And he said, you know, like we're doing mission after mission, we're going into the same valleys year after year, and we're not building roads or schools or building up local governments because we don't have money for any of that, right? We're just doing interdiction mission after interdiction mission, getting into these gnarly firefights against the Taliban. And we're chewing them up because, you know, we're special forces. And we, you know, great soldiers, got all the support of the American military. And, and I used to wonder, like, you know, why is the Taliban sending these kids against us? And I realized, like, oh, they're doing it because they can, right? And he said, like, a really kind of nihilistic warrior culture built up because it was like, what are we doing? We're just here to, we're just here to fight. And, you know, what, you know, five years from now, is this valley going to belong to the Taliban? Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. And everybody knows that. A forgotten war fought by forgotten soldiers. One of the things that Phil Clay talks about in his wonderful collection of new essays on certain ground, citizenship in an age of endless invisible war. Phil, I want to talk, uh, take a, a short break now, and then I, I want to come back and I want to get your sense of what's happening in America right now in terms of uh, the kind of weird warfare that's taking mm -hmm. place in the America of 2022. So we'll take a, a 60 second break and then we'll be back with Phil Clay, the author of Uncertain Ground. Hi everyone, Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We're back with Phil Clay, the author of Uncertain Ground, Citizenship in an Age of Endless Invisible War, a wonderful collection of essays about life in the American military in the 21st century and life indeed outside the military. 
Uh, Phil, looking at the headlines today, lots of stuff about Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a maybe a, a rather distant drumbeat of, of war, especially, oddly enough, amongst progressives. Does that make you fearful as a, a soldier or, or an ex-soldier or perhaps excited? What's your take on the, the American response so far to Putin's invasion of, of Ukraine. Interestingly enough, we did have one guy on the show uh, recently, um, uh, Joseph Weisberg, who wrote The Americans, a, a, a sympathetic uh, thinker when it comes to Russia, who believes that Bush's invasion of Iraq and Putin's invasion of Ukraine are similar in that they were both sold as lies to the Russian and American people. I'm not sure on your take on that. So, I mean, it's it's obviously a unjust war of aggression, and I absolutely support support Ukraine, and 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 I support the I'm in favor of the the kind of support that we've offered them, right? I think that it's it's extremely important to to <laughs> to, to oppose wars of aggression, right? Well, that uh, goes without saying. I mean, who, who is it? Who who would come on this any show and argue? in favor of wars of aggression. Well, and I think that we, you know, we all have a stake in that. And I do think that, um, you know, I, I do think that Iraq weakened that prohibition, right? Um, I don't think that it's the cause um, uh, of Putin, but I think that great powers need to actually find ways of restraining themselves and set set limits in terms of, uh, you know, what they permit themselves to do in the interaction, international arena, uh, because I do think norms are important. And actually, you know, if you look at the kind of tremendous support that's being offered to Ukraine, not just moral support or people, you know, cheering from the sidelines, but I mean, in, in terms of very real, um, you know, military support, economic sanctions placed on Russia, that comes from people's sense that a critical international norm has been has been violated and that norm against sort of aggressive war you know that is not something that that existed in all of human history it was created as the result of 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 activists and and politicians and thinkers over the especially the 19th and 20th centuries right Uh, we forget about the nuremberg trials but the main thing that was being prosecuted then was the crime of aggressive war and i think that yeah uh, but phil I don't want to turn this into a conversation about Nuremberg. Uh, people talk about genocide in in Ukraine. There's an enormous difference between what the Russians are doing. No, no. no. So this is this Ukraine is actually, and, and this is the misconception. So this right. is the misconception about Nuremberg, right? We remember Nuremberg as a war crimes trial, but Nuremberg, the principal um, crime that was being prosecuted, was unjust war of aggression. Okay, right? fair enough. Right, which is which is a common. Um, sort of common mistaken understanding of the trial, right? And and it sort of is related to to changes in in activism and thoughts about um, thoughts about war in the latter half of the 20th century. But so it's it's in terms of our norms of of you know international conduct of great great powers that I do think you can you can tie Iraq and and um, uh, and Ukraine together. You know, am I concerned? Yes, I mean, like I have, I have concerns anytime sort of war fever comes. I think that um, when we're talking about war, you need to keep a cool head. You need to 
be thoughtful about the kind of policies that you advocate. You know, I, I opposed the idea of a no-fly zone because I thought that it would be extremely dangerous. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think that the kind of aid that we're, we're providing Ukraine is very good. And it seems like, you know, in terms of what I was talking about with targeted killing, one of the things that we're providing Ukraine, uh, according to recent reporting, is help with targeting. Right, particularly high-ranking uh, Russian officers, uh, which is an interesting development to say the least. And I think one aspect of 21st century war that's become very sophisticated and different from wars in the past. Phil, you write in one of your essays, a wonderful essay actually, a very moving essay about public rage. Looking at the headlines today, we have tragic manifestations of that public rage, of course, um, mm -hmm. in uh, a massacre, a, 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 a racist massacre that took place in Buffalo earlier this week, um, in which uh, the mass killer apparently put his plans online be before he, 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 he perpetrated this great crime, planned the attack for months. You write about the militarization of American civilian life and the way in which the technology of American warfare overseas has been brought into America. Uh, I don't want to talk particularly about that mass killing, unfortunately, or tragically, there are terrible mass killings, it seems, every week in America, although this one is particularly troubling because of its racism. Um, is there a connection, Phil, between these mass killings in America and these perpetual wars overseas, often invisible wars that you write about in Uncertain Ground? So there's a long piece in the book on the history of guns in, in America and sort of technological developments in guns and developments in marketing. And you can't um, disentangle that from the history of wars, right? So, you know, developments that come in during the Civil War or, um, you know, the the realization during Vietnam that the Americans, which had sort of favored a, a heavier, more accurate, long-range rifle, uh, were getting outshot just in terms of sheer firepower by the Viet Cong with AK-47s. And so you know, we sort of rushed into, into production the M16, uh, the civilian variant of which the AR-15 is, is now the most popular weapon in America and is often used in these kinds of, uh, of shootings, so not exclusively. Um, you also have alongside that a kind of marketing, right? There's this idea of America as like, you know, we've always been a gun culture. It's not really the case. Um, our first murder was committed with a, with, a, with a gun. Our first convicted murderer, John Billington, who came on the Mayflower. Um, but around the Revolutionary War, one of the problems that, that, uh, that we had as a country was that we didn't have enough guns or gunsmiths to supply ourselves. And a lot of the guns that people had were, you know, in poor condition, not suitable for use. Um, and gun manufacturers in the mid 19th century had great difficulty actually selling their weapons. There wasn't a big enough civilian market, right? There's a, a story I tell in the essay of, of Colt selling 10,000 uh, revolvers to Texas and that, you know, that saturated the market and then he couldn't sell more in Texas, which is, you know, if you think about the number of firearms that are probably just in Texas as a state right now, that's that's interesting to think about. 
And so along with sort of innovations in firearms, he developed innovations in marketing, right? And, and sort of predicament advertising where, you know, somebody's under threat and they're using a gun to protect themselves. And that sort of thing um, got, got bound up with other types of advertising about how the, you know, how the West was won and, and the importance of Winchester rifles uh, to the winning of the West, which, you know, um, was more mythological than real. And then in the present day, you have sort of this extremely sort of kind of paranoid, supercharged type of advertising that often does rely on martial imagery or military imagery, um, you know, the, the or sort of, you know, the threat of terrorism or, or those sorts of things to keep people, um, to keep people buying guns. And, and so it's not that I would say that there's a direct correlation between the wars and and a mass shooting. I, I, I don't think that that's, that's true. But I don't think that you can disentangle the sort of mythology of the gun from um, American industry and from American industry's relationship with wars, right? And the mythologies around both. Um, Phil, um, we've done a number of shows about the imminence, potential imminence of civil war in America, the two sides, <laughs> right and left, coasts and all the rest of, you know, coastal elites versus everybody else. Um, we had Justin Guest, for example, on the show talking about avoiding civil war by creating a post-racial civic identity, a new kind of sense of citizenship. Uh, two questions for you on this. I mean, you, your, your new collection on certain ground is essays rather than a manifesto, but are you, do you fear civil war in America, especially coming back from overseas? Do you think that America might indeed be on the brink of civil strife? Um, and secondly, of course, if it is, how do we avoid it? No, I don't think so. I, I think, I mean, I think that the, we have great challenges and a lot of sort of toxic elements of our political culture, but I don't think we're on the brink of civil war. I'm not even sure what the divide would be, right? Um, so, so no, I, you know, I, I don't... You know, I don't, you know, I don't see some state <laughs> seceding from the union. Uh, you know, of course, there, 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 there's always a possibility of, of, you know, violence committed by people um, driven by sort of, you know, the more unhinged variants of, of partisan politics. I mean, we've seen that, right? We've seen that. And we see, yeah, we see it, unfortunately, every week. We've seen it this week. Finally, Phil, um, you have a podcast called Manifesto. Um, as I said, this is a collection of essays on certain ground citizenship in an age of endless invisible war. It doesn't contain a, a formal manifesto in terms of what we should and shouldn't do to the military and America in this, this age of the invisible war. But is there a manifesto there? Is there, is there? Are there a couple of things that you think we really need to do in order to rebuild or protect citizenship and perhaps end this age of endless invisible war finally? Sure. I mean, I think we need to take more sort of democratic, introduce more democratic accountability into war making, right? Um, uh, I do think, so, you know, getting rid of the authorization for the use of military force, forcing Congress to regularly debate and vote on these matters, forcing more transparency from the Department of Defense. I think it's a scandal that we haven't had embedded reporters with, with troops abroad for, for a long time now. 
Um, I think that I do think national service, as we talked about at the beginning of the show, would be very good. I think it would be, you know, inculcate much more healthy attitudes and relationships to America. Um, and I think just sort of in, in general, I think it's important for people to to have a deeper understanding of, of the kinds of cultural garbage swirling around about about war, uh, about veterans. Uh, so they're better able to to respond to and react to and interact with veterans in their own communities and respond to, uh, you know, political claims about war and war making. Yeah. And above all else, of course, that's best done through literature, through writing your new, new collection of essays on certain ground. Citizenship in an age of endless invisible war brings these invisible wars into people's homes. You write, Phil, uh, an essay in the book about... Um, World War One literature, of course, which again, using careful with these terms, represents in some ways the high point of literature about the horrors of war. Are there other books in addition to uh, Uncertain Ground that you would advise people to read, either about American contemporary wars or about war in general, to make them understand the horrors of war? Sure, I think this phenomenal work by military veterans right now. Um, uh, Mac Gallagher and Elliot Ackerman have been producing phenomenal both nonfiction and fiction. Ryan Lee Dosti um, and Kayla Williams both have excellent uh, memoirs about their time in service. There's a wonderful anthology of uh, fiction called The Road Ahead uh, that was edited by Brian Brian Kastner and Adrian Bonnenberger that has a really wide and sort of diverse array of veteran voices. Um, and there's, you know, websites like the Wrathbearing Tree, which publishes, uh, you know, work by veterans on the regular. So I think that there's a real um, tremendous amount of very powerful and perceptive and, and, and thoughtful responses to, to our wars and where we, you know, where we might go from here. 